Well, today we get to continue on in our sermon series called Stranger Things in the Bible, and this whole series has been based on a bunch of questions that our teenagers had after going, uh, spending the better part of a year in the Hebrew scriptures of the Bible. Um, there's a lot of weird stories in the Bible, and they were keen on um, what's up with some of these stories. In fact, they had a ton of questions, great questions that I'll probably be drawing upon for the next few years. Um, so if you have a bulletin, you know that the sermon title has to do with Job, and uh, just in case you're getting your hopes up, it's not this Job that, yeah, it's not Job Bluth, that's G-O-B, um, yeah, no references to Franklin, that would not be appropriate, but anyway, so, uh, so what, is this, what is this sermon going to be about then? This is going to be about the book of Job, it's a book in the Bible, and it's 42 chapters long, and so there's no way I'm going to even scratch the surface on this complex interesting book, Um, but what I am going to try and do is address the question that was given to me, a question that most of us, I think, have once we read the book of Job, and this question stems from the beginning of the book, from the first two chapters, and so what I'm thinking is the best way to do it, rather than like give you the question, is to read the first two chapters and then um, see if we have the same questions, okay? So, Job 1 and 2, here we go. In the land of Uz, not like O-O-Z, it's like Uz, U-Z. Um, in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. And this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. And he had seven sons and three daughters. And he owned 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys. That's a lot of animals. He had a large number of servants, and he was the greatest man of the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their sisters to eat and drink with them. And when a period of of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for his children to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of his children, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular custom. Now, one, one day, the angels, or literally the, the sons of God, or the heavenly host, came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Satan was with them. And the Lord said to the Satan, where have you come from? And the Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to the Satan, have you conserve, uh, considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, the Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge of protection around him and his household and everything that he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything that he has and he will surely curse you. To your face. The Lord said to the Satan, Very well, then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, don't lay a finger. Then the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Uh, One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. And they put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one left, and I've come to tell you everything. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell on the heaven from the heavens and burned up the sheep and all the servants. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you 
And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. And they put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came. Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine in the oldest, at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, and it collapsed on them, and they're all dead, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up, and he tore his clothes and shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now on another day, the angels came to present themselves to the Lord, and the Satan also came and with them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to the Satan, where have you come from? The Satan answered to the Lord and said, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. And then the Lord said to the Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless. He's an upright man. He fears God and shuns evil. He still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for sin. Skin for skin, the Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he'll surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to the Satan, very well, then he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. So the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself as he sat among the ashes. And his wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. And he replied, you're talking like a foolish woman, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now when Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they sat out from their homes and met together in agreement to go and sympathize with him and to comfort him. And they saw him from a distance and they could hardly recognize him and they began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and they sprinkled dust on their heads and they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Chapters one and two of Job, real uplifting stuff. Now, there's so much to say about this book. There's 40 more chapters. But what I'm going to do is address these two questions that the youth had from these two chapters. Is this Job figure a real historical figure or not? Like, is he, are we supposed to believe that this is a real man or is this a story about someone? Number two, there's just a two-parter. It's actually two questions. Why did God let Satan do all that stuff to Job? Right? It hurts your brain to think of like all the other stuff we read about God in the Bible just doesn't add up. So why did he allow this to happen? Are those questions that you sometimes wrestle with? Book of Job, yeah, me, me too. So this is a worthwhile experience for us. So here we go. I think an important question is how do we interpret 
the book of Job. Like, that's always a starting point. Um, If we take scripture seriously, and I think you know by now that I do, I take scripture seriously. So if we take scripture seriously as the word of God, then we aren't free to just interpret it however we want. At least that's my conviction. I'll just put my cards on the table. I don't think we're free just to be like, that's a really hard statement, so I think I want to interpret it like this or like that to make it easier. Um, We have to have some parameters, and one important parameter, one starting point you should always ask yourself when you're reading a book of the Bible is what kind of literature am I dealing with? Like, if you've ever read the Psalms, all these poems and songs, you know that that's a different sort of writing than, say, the, the four Gospels about Jesus' life. Those are, like, those are like ancient biographies, and the Psalms are something completely different, poetry and music and emotional, right? And you know that both of those two things are very different from Proverbs or the, the, the Torah, where we learn of, you know, the, the Genesis and Exodus. There's different kinds of writings in the Bible, And they have different ways that they need to be approached. So what kind of literature is the book of Job? That's what we're getting at. Well, in general, the book of Job falls into a category known as wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. And while there's quite a few books of the Bible that fall into this genre, I think the three main ones, the ones that you've probably heard of before, uh, are going to be Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. That's the trifecta of of main wisdom books. And these wisdom books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, they're best interpreted when they're read in conversation with each other. So if you only read Proverbs, that would be problematic. Proverbs needs to get balanced by Ecclesiastes that needs to get balanced by Job. And the three are in conversation with each other. They offer us different things. So the purpose of wisdom literature, just so you know, is that it, 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 it's to explore what it means to live well in God's world, right? Wisdom literature is to help us know what it means to live well in God's world. How do we do it? How do we get the most out of life? Okay, so we're just going to do a little overview of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and then we're going to get to Job so that you, okay, so you're along for the ride. Okay, Proverbs is about how one can attain wisdom, and in Hebrew, this word is chokmah. You've got to say it with the guttural. Chokmah. Can you do that? Chokmah. Chokmah is wisdom, and it's more than just a collection of, like, of knowledge or trivia. It's the concept, it's a, it's a concept or a principle that God seems to have woven in the fabric of the universe. So when we go with the grain of chokmah, life goes generally pretty well. Uh, when we resist wisdom, we fall into folly and ruin as a general rule. So Tim Mackey writes, most importantly, wisdom is not an impersonal concept. It's a uniquely tied to God. Having the fear of the Lord is how it's described in Proverbs, which means a healthy respect of God's definition of good and evil. That's what chokmah is. You understand what good and evil is according to God in lots of different life situations like in your relationships, like in business, like in how you treat your neighbors, like in how you treat your kids, in marriage relationships, in friendship relationships. All all of these things are explored in Proverbs. And in Proverbs 1 through 9, here's what I want to point out. In Proverbs 1 through 9, this concept of wisdom 
is personified as a woman who embodies chokmah. Her name is Lady Wisdom. She actually doesn't have a name. It's just what she's referred to. And it's clear, and as you read the book of Proverbs, like no, there's no theory out there that Lady Wisdom is a real human person or even a godly, like a spiritual person. It, it, she, she is a literary device that's made to help us interact with this book. So it, no one out there, no scholars on any spectrum think that, that Lady Wisdom is a real person. Okay? So she's a, in wisdom literature, she's, she's a literary device that Lady Wisdom yells out into the streets, come, anyone who wants wisdom. And, and the point is that you don't have to be male or female or old or young. You don't have, a, have to be a certain ethnicity. You don't even have to have a certain level of intellect because wisdom is about how we relate to God and to others. It's not about intelligence. And that means it flattens everything. That it's available to everyone. So Lady Wisdom is, is this optimistic. She sees the grain of things. In fact, if you look at your pew, you'll see wood grain, right? And, and in general, like, chokmah is when you go with the grain, life goes smoothly. So like when you are kind and honest and work hard, right? It's things typically, typically go better than when you go against the grain and say, you know, I'm gonna lie and cheat and steal and murder and be lazy. And generally, like in, if you took a thousand people and you said, hey, all you who work hard and do right versus the thousand people who are criminal, you know, like in general, the people who follow chokmah just kind of have a better life. But that's not always the case, is it? <laughs> Experience tells us something quite different, and that's where Ecclesiastes comes in. Ecclesiastes presents us with a take on wisdom using two characters. One is called the critic, who is a literary creation in Ecclesiastes, not a real person. You wouldn't read Ecclesiastes and think, oh, this is a real person. Uh, the other is the author, who probably is a real person. So if Lady Wisdom from Proverbs is presented as this optimistic young woman of virtue, the critic of Ecclesiastes is someone who's lived a bit. Maybe a middle-aged person who's been burned a few times. You might say they're a little jaded, a little cynical. Somebody might say they're street smart. And the critic is the teacher, or kohelet in Hebrew, and he frequently says vanity, vanity, all is meaningless under the sun. The Hebrew word for meaningless, hevel, hevel. You just say it because you're going to fall asleep if you don't say these things. Oh, hevel, hevel means not meaningless but ethereal. It literally could mean smoke. So the idea is this. Your life's going pretty well. Maybe your job's going well, school's going well, and then fill in the blank. You get sick. Someone you love leaves you. Um, your best friend moves away. Uh, you get a new boss, and now your job is horrible. Uh, fill in the blank. It's, you think things are going in a certain direction, and then all of a sudden, hevel. It's like smoke. I, it was so solid and so sure I had a plan for my life, and then cancer, broken relationship, broken leg, new boss, had to move, fill in the blank, war, whatever it is, hevel, and then everything changes, and that's life. That's life a lot of the times. 
the author of Ecclesiastes wants to turn our world upside down. Great, you read Proverbs. Now, come into the school of life. And, and he talks about three main things. First of all is the inevitability of time. He says people come, people go, but the earth endures. And I don't care if you're old, I don't care if you're the future generations, your life is small compared to the universe, compared to the earth. Hevel, hevel. And this is really uplifting stuff, right? The second thing, we're all going to die. The animals die. You think you're so special, humans. You're going to die. Hevel, hevel. Your plans are hevel. Smoke. Third, life is seemingly random. It, it, this is in tension with Proverbs, which suggests that there's an order written into the fabric of the, of the world. But Ecclesiastes warns us of what appears to be chance. The good don't always find favor, right? Good guys, sorry, don't always win. Doesn't mean you shouldn't try and be one. They don't always win. Um, evil sometimes does appear to win. The best qualified don't always get the job. And for all of our striving, we can't actually control the outcome of our life. I know that's not a newsflash, but it's hevel. And the critic in Ecclesiastes affirms the wisdom of Proverbs. He says it is best to fear the Lord and to do the right thing, to go with the grain of the universe, but just know this, it doesn't always work out. The universe is not mechanical. You can't just do A, B, and C and expect C, D, and E as the outcome. And so the advice of the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, the critic and the author, is this. Enjoy each day Enjoy your meal with the people you love because it might not be there tomorrow. That's the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Intention with the wisdom of Proverbs. The purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes, by the way, I know that, that I almost got depressed reading all of those things. It's not to depress us. He wants us to trust God in the uncertainty and that life is made up of more than we can see. At the end of this book, after all this depressing stuff, the author claims that God will bring clarity to the hevel, to the smoke, to this mystifying, vexing, seeming fog that we live in. We can't see the future, we can't control the future, and at some point in the new creation, it's hinted at that we will see clearly. So in Proverbs, we have this fictitious character whose wisdom personified, she's presented as a young, optimistic woman. Ecclesiastes, uh, Ecclesiastes uses a fictitious character called Kohelet, or the critic, and he's presented as a jaded, possibly middle-aged man, at least that's in my mind, he smokes and wears a Portland Timbers thing, you know, I'm just kidding. You know. So in Proverbs, we have that, in Ecclesiastes, we have that, and then we come to Job, and that's I was leading us to Job. And in Job, uh, we have the young woman, we have the middle age. Now Job is an old person who's lived a full, abundant life, a righteous and fruitful life. And at the beginning of Job, we have an opening scenario um, that doesn't necessarily equate to how we, to, to real life. So just like Lady Wisdom, and just like the critic, we aren't so sure if Job is supposed to be a real historical figure or not. So here's some interesting facts just to consider about the story. First, Job and his friends are not Israelites. Not at all. 
While Job is described by God as a righteous man, he's not necessarily aware of God like Yahweh, like the Israelite God. So every time that Job and his friends talk about God, it's Elohim, or the Elohim, like multiple, like maybe multiple gods, or a high God of, of, of other Eastern gods. It's only in chapters one and two, and then when God speaks at the end of the book, that you know it's Yahweh who's actually in conversation. But when Job speaks, it's, it's just Elohim. It's not Yahweh. It's not the specific Israelite God necessarily. That's interesting to me. And in many ways, he acts like a righteous pagan man, not a righteous Israelite man, meaning he seems to want to appease God rather than relate to him. So when his, his kids have these wild parties, right, and, and you see like, I just, I want to make sure that God's not mad, just in case they did something wrong, I'm going to offer some sacrifices to purify my kids. Now, notice that the kids' hearts have nothing to do with it. That's a very pagan concept. Like an Israelite or Christian concept we relate to God, and I could pray all I want for my kids, but my kids need to have a faith of their own. That's kind of the, the story. But in the pagan world, you could just like, hey, I'm gonna give gifts to the gods and make them happy, and then maybe they'll look a different direction from my kids who may have screwed up. Okay, so that's a very pagan concept. So, so if Job is a historical person, he's not necessarily one we're supposed to follow. Second, the numbers in Job are fantastic. Like, Okay, he just happens to have seven sons and three daughters, two really holy numbers that when you put together make the perfect number 10. In ancient numerology, this is the number of perfection, right? Um, he just happens to have 7,000 sheep, another perfect number times 1,000, um, not 6,999 or 7,001. It's 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 donkeys, like these perfectly round numbers. Domesticated camels, by the way, were extremely rare. 3,000 domesticated camels is, it's almost like unbelievable. No ancient person had 3,000 camels. Um, but apparently Job does. Um, so that, that, that's just a fantastical thing. And even in the destruction of Job's, Job's family, the story's a little too perfect, right? Like, he's hanging out, and then this runner comes and says, everybody's dead. Uh, fire from heaven came. They burned up all 3,000 sheep, not one, or whatever, 7,000 sheep. And, oh, and then, just as he's getting that, another guy says, oh, they killed everybody over in this part, and I'm the last one. And then it's four times. It's really, like, that's... That would be so hard to conceive of as actually being like a real thing that, that happened, but it, it could happen. So th that's, that's interesting. And, and third, the third interesting detail is that most of the book of Job contains these interactions between Job and his three friends. And the way it goes is like Job will complain or he'll say something, and then one of his friends will say, blah, 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 and then Job will respond, and then the second friend will go, blah, 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 blah. And what's interesting is then, all of these interactions, they're long interactions, they are perfect Hebrew poetry in perfect parallelism. Like, no one would think a person would talk that way. Collins once gave me a book for my birthday. It's um, Star Wars in Shakespearean language. It reminds me of that. It's, I should have brought it and read it because it's just brilliant. But like, if someone is mourning and you go and talk with them, you know, you don't have perfect poetry that you just blah, 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 and then the Job responds in perfect poetry. It's, 
it, it doesn't read like a normal conversation. Let's just put it that way. So there's some evidence here that just like the other wisdom books, maybe Job is not a historical figure, but a literary figure that the author is, is using to make a point about wisdom. Job reads more like a thought experiment than it does like a historical account. Now let me pause there for a moment. Let me pause there for a moment and say something very clearly to you. I'm only gonna, I only share things generally about what orthodox Christianity thinks about. And I want you to put your thinking caps on. Within the spectrum of orthodox Christianity, there is a quite a wide variety of thoughts about the book of Job. About every book of the Bible, really. And I just wanted to present to you some of the spectrum because you might feel like, I don't fit in that category of Job as a, as a literary figure. Like, I was always taught he's a real dude, and I want to keep believing he's a real dude. So that is something Job and his friends are pure literary craft, just like Lady Wisdom, and just like the critic in Ecclesiastes, and that's one view. Other people think that, jo- that there was a dude named Job, who was a really righteous guy, and wealthy, and he was from the east, and he really lived, and he really suffered. And then later on, they wrote some things about him and used him as an example to speak about wisdom. And they changed some details and added some poetry as they thought more about it. But there's a historical truth to a person named Job, and then there's some embellishment to tell the to tell wisdom thing. So that's another view. And then uh, quite a different view would be there are people that read Job within Orthodox Christianity and say, no, we think Job and the story and the way it's written, everything happened the way it says. And that's okay too. So I just want you to know that there, there's, there's space in the umbrella for a wide variety of views. And that's not really the point. The kids asked, is Job a real person, a historical figure or not? And that's, if, if they're here or they're gonna watch this later, I would say that very same thing. He could be, he doesn't have to be, and you can still follow Jesus and be in the big tent of Orthodox Christianity and have both of those views. Is that okay? Okay. All right, but that's only one part of the question. The other part's not so easy to get at. Okay, it still leaves us with the big question about this character of Satan and God, like, uh, seemingly, like, just saying, like, hey, um... Satan, like in the story, Satan doesn't even notice Job. It's God that says, like, have you seen my servant Job? And then he says, like, go ahead and mess with his life and see if he mocks me or, like, curses me. It's crazy, right? And so I know that we're all curious about that. I'm curious about it. Uh, We first have to come to grips with three assumptions that these people had in the ancient world. This is going to help us get to the Satan thing. Okay, so Torin's going to put the first assumption up on the, up on the thing, and I'll make, this will all be on the live stream recording if you're like, I can't write that fast, or, or whatever, I can give you my notes later, but assumption number one is something called the retributive justice principle, or the retributive principle, and the, basically the idea is this, is that God rewards in a person's lifetime those who live righteously, and that he punishes in this lifetime those who do evil. I probably don't need to tell you, but I will. I never want to make assumptions like assumption number one. This is not a biblical principle. This is not something that is true. This is not something in Christian theology. This is something people in the ancient world often thought. And so these people in Job, 
are dealing with this principle, and Israelites, oftentimes we see it in the scriptures, they wrongly believe this principle. Okay, so assumption number one, the retributive principle, okay? People are gonna get what they deserve in this lifetime. Assumption number two, that God is just, and what that means from an ancient perspective is that if God is just, he will follow the retributive principle. So they assumed that God was just, which meant that they would assume that if you did evil, you would get judged in this lifetime, and if you did good, you would be blessed in this lifetime. Okay, does that make sense? Number three, the assumption number three, that humans get what they deserve based on their behavior. So the righteous prosper and the wicked languish. Does that, that's pretty clear, the three three assumptions of the ancient world. Now, we're going to turn this into an equation. So let's go ahead, Torin. I know you're a math guy anyway. So the assumed principle of the world was this, that you've got the retributive principle, that people get what they deserve, and that God is just, meaning that he will always follow the retributive principle, and if you add righteous behavior, that means you'll be blessed. And in the second equation, equally true according to the ancient people, retributive principle plus God is just means that evil behavior will equal suffering for people. Well, as people twisted that logic, they went to this next one. The, the assumed principle of the world kind of stretched. So, if a person had wealth or abundance and God is just, and the retributive principle is true, then that person must be righteous. And if a person is suffering, and God is just, and follows the retributive principle, then the person must be unrighteous. And you can see how the pagan influence crept into Israel's understanding of God. And the book of Job, let me say this clearly, you have to get this part. The book of Job seems to want to go to battle against these principles. It's there to tell us, like, you should maybe rethink those principles. I didn't create the world to follow those principles. And here's how they play out. Job's friends believe in the retributive principle. They observe that Job is suffering, and since God is assumed to be just, they conclude that Job must have sinned. And they urge him, listen, man, I know you've been a great guy most of your life. You must have done something. So just repent, and then God will restore you. And he's like, no, man, I didn't do anything wrong. They are so, these, these assumptions are so firm in their mind that they will spend like 30 chapters telling Job he needs to repent in all these creative ways. It's really agonizing to read the whole thing, by the way. With poetry, yes, that you can't pick out in English very well, but okay, there it is, there. Okay, and then the assumption of Job is that Job is suffering, there's no mistaking that, Job is righteous, and we know something that the characters don't. They don't get chapters one and two, right? The characters don't get that scene in heaven where God, Yahweh, says, have you considered Job? He's a righteous man. He actually is righteous in God's eyes. So Job's got two things right. Job suffers, he's right about that. Job is righteous, He's right about that. And if the retributive justice or pr principle is in play, then God must not be just. That's Job's take. God must not be just. 
Now here, I, all of that buildup, thank you for sticking with me, all of that buildup gets us to the heavenly court scene. Job and his friends never know anything about the court scene or, or the council scene. Yeah, it's like, it's like some boardroom where God's the CEO at the table and he's got like, I don't know, his lieutenants or whatever, and then some dude comes in, like I imagine him smoking, and he's like, <laughs> where, you, where you coming from? Oh, I've just been cruising around the earth and I just want to ruin someone's life today. No, <laughs> they never know about this scene at all, so they have no idea why any of the suffering is happening. And, and the heavenly court scene is there to make us aware that God himself knows Job is righteous. Doesn't mean he's perfect. Like, you know that term blameless and righteous in the Bible? It just means a person who lives uprightly. It doesn't mean moral perfection. Nobody's morally perfect. Now, what do we do with this heavenly council or this court scene? Well, we are not to think that this is how God actually governs the world. Like, if we, it's, it's kind of like looking at a picture of Jesus and saying like, oh, he must have looked like that Swedish white guy or, or what, you know, like, it's a depiction. And, and nobody was in the room here. There's no, there's no person saying like, hey, I actually saw this happening. And you know what God, you know how he manages the universe? Like, he's at this table and some dude zoomed in because he's got COVID and, you know, like, it, 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 it's, we're not to think that this is actually how God runs the universe. Um, in fact, the whole scene is presented as part of this larger-than-life story or scene. It's, again, it's like more like a thought experiment than it is telling us how God actually is. So for comparison, let me just compare with other parts of the Bible where you do seem to have like the veil lifted, like in the book of Daniel or in the book of Revelation. It seems like there's a veil lifted, and for a moment we're able to peer inside what's going on in the heavenly realm. In both of those books, Daniel and Revelation, the people telling us about what they see have a vision from God that God gives Daniel a revelation into what's going on in the heavenly realm, and John on Patmos receives a revelation from God about what's going on in the world. There's zero of that in the book of Job. There's no indication that this is a window into how God actually runs things. So if it freaks you the heck out that God might be at a boardroom table just willy-nilly like zapping people because the Satan wants to, you can rest easy that that's not what this is telling us. Oh, that felt good to say. <sighs> it still leaves us with this question though, what is this trying to say? Because in this story, even if it's not exactly how God works, it sure seems like God like gives Satan permission to go zap some dude and put boils on his body and it's horrible. And this is where we need to take our preconceived notions about what we think about Satan and just put them, you can put them right here if you want. Pile them up. I don't know what you think you've heard or what you think you know, but just put them there for a minute. In Hebrew, the spiritual being referred to as Satan is literally ha-satan. Ha in Hebrew is the, it's called a definite article, it's the the and so you always have it as the Satan. Satan is not a name. It's a description. So the Satan is literally, in Hebrew, the challenger or the accuser or the adversary. 
It's not a, it's not a proper name. There's no one named Satan. You really, you're like, it says in my English Bible. If you, in fact, if you turn to the Job 1 and 2, you will see probably in the NIV or NASB or NRSV, you'll see Satan in a capital S. And we could talk about the history of translation over dinner tonight. It just so happens it's a dinner night. If you're like, tell me about that. I want to nerd out. I'm your man. I'll do it. But let me just say this. In Hebrew, it's the Satan, lowercase, not a proper name. And throughout scripture, there are lots of the Satan. So maybe you've heard of the story of Balaam and his, and his ass, because we like to say that about a donkey. It's like, we got to swear in the Bible. Um, so Balaam is this dude, and he's on a donkey, and he, he's going to go through this tight crevasse, like a, a rocky trail goes through two rocks, and there is an angel of the Lord who stands there in his way and prevents him from passing through. The angel of the Lord, a good angel, is called the Hasatan, the Satan, the, the challenger. In the book of, uh, of Kings, Solomon uh, turns against God and humans are called the Satan. Uh, there, there's two human kings that rise up against Solomon. I'll give you the page numbers in case you want to know. First Kings eleven fourteen, First Kings eleven twenty three. And when it says that these, these kings uh, challenged or, or went up against Solomon, they were ha-sataning Solomon. So humans can be Satan, Angels can be Satan. Anyone who is a challenger or an adversary is a Satan. So if you're the squeaky wheel in your boardroom, sometimes you're being a Satan. And good leadership, I think, welcomes some Satans into their, into their uh, leadership groups because they need to have someone that keeps them in order, right? Somebody who sees things from a different direction. I'm not saying, like, the <laughs> don't invite the devil to your party. I'm saying hasatan, like people that are going to challenge the status quo. As we read the story of Job more carefully, we then see that the Satan is coming to the heavenly council to report on what he has witnessed, much like in the ancient Near East, royal councils would meet. So in days before, cameras and drones and telegraphs and telephones and all of that if you are a king or a queen and you have a vast realm, even if you were just king or queen of Whatcom County, think how massive that would be if all you had is some freaking camels. Like, you, you couldn't know what's going on, so you have little regional governors everywhere, and every so often you call a council together, right? So I've got the governor of Fairhaven and the one up in Ferndale and the one out on the east side and the one on the Marietta, and they all come together, and it's like, uh, Julia, what's been going up in Ferndale? Oh, well, you know, some people are unhappy, but there's some flooding going on out there. We need to send some coin up there. So this is the scene. This is an ancient Near Eastern king council. And the councils come together, and it's these angelic figures, and one is described as the Ha-Satan. He's going to challenge the status quo. The Satan in this story isn't trying to usurp God's authority. If anything, he seems to be trying to protect God's dignity by suggesting that Job's obedience is only due to the rewards that he gets. And the Satan suggests that perhaps Job isn't truly righteous. Like, maybe he's only righteous. Maybe he only does righteous things to get the rewards that he gets. So in the story, God is the one, not the Satan, who allows suffering on Job and his family. And again, I can't state this enough, that this is not trying to teach us anything about how God runs things or about God's character. This scene is supposed to make us feel very unsettled 
and uncomfortable and disgusted and appalled. It's like realizing your parents are the ones who put the presents under the tree. Well, your dad is the one who eats the cookies you put out for Santa all these years. Not that that really is a thing if there's any kids listening to this. Uh, I'm just saying if that were a thing, that would be horrible, appalling. And that's what it's supposed to be like. Like you're looking into the boardroom of like, you would be freaked out if God actually ran the universe as is described in the book of Job, which is why it's not described like that anywhere else in the Bible. (laughs) And that's right where the author wants us, pissed off disgusted. How could you be like this, God? He wants us identifying with Job and his friends. And as we read this, we're going to fall in on one of those things, like either Job must have screwed up because he wouldn't have suffered, or God's not good. Remember the retributive principle. Assuming God is good and just, and that the world works under the law of retributive principle. The friends conclude that Job must have sinned, and that in his grief, they pile it on, they show how it's got to be his fault, how he should just repent, assuming that the world works under the law of retributive principle, and that he is innocent. Job questions whether or not God is good at all, and in the courtroom scene, We have our doubts too now because we've seen too much. We've seen behind the veil, supposedly. And we're left suspicious of God, feeling like pawns in a game being waged by power brokers in a heavenly boardroom. And if we're thinking that way, that's what the author wants. And we're all of a sudden, we're duped. We're bought in. We've we've taken the bait. And the payoff is about to come. At the end of the book, Job demands audience with God. He's like, I'm so sick of this. These friends don't know anything. I know I'm right. You're not treating me as I need to be treated. Come have audience with me. I mean, he's crying out. And God comes to him. And this is the part of the book that all of a sudden reads very differently than the other parts. And you're like, oh, this is how Yahweh is. This this part, he really is like this. And he gives him audience never explains why he suffered but instead he gives him a virtual tour of the universe and he opens Job's eyes and by reading Job he opens our eyes to the utter complexity of running the universe of the natural world that even in the 21st century We know so much about these animals that he describes, about weather patterns. We still can't explain why these things exist at all, why they're the way they are, why they're designed the way they are. I mean, it's, it's, it's utterly beyond us. The way that God holds together chaos and order and justice and fairness, and he offers his job, God offers his job of running things to Job for a moment. And he said, you know, can you rightly judge people according to the standards that you want to have? Job, do you really want retributive justice where everyone gets what they deserve? Think that through. Do you really want that? If you did really want that, you want to go down that road one more step, can you, do you have the wisdom 
to mete it out fairly? Could any human stand before God and actually want what they deserve? And in the end, Job is humbled and he sees, he experiences his total lack of understanding of how things actually work. And he, and he, he comes to realize that no person can administrate the universe except God. And he repents of his accusations against God and he realizes that God is good and faithful. And he's knitting all of these things together. Job never learns why he suffered and that's not the point of the book of Job. Yet he is able to live in peace and trust God. In the end, the book of Job debunks the assumption that the world operates under the retributive principle. Job its main point, if you were to take something away, besides that God is awesome and can do all these things that we can't. The main point is that the retributive principle is not in play. That people don't always get what they deserve. The whole point of the book is to show that Job's suffering wasn't because he did something wrong, and it wasn't because God was unjust. The point is to show that the supposed retributive principle is not a law at all. You can't assume that all good fortune is a reward for righteousness. You can't assume that all bad fortune is a punishment on you. So it really challenges like the health and wealth movement and the prosperity gospel. Job's fortunes are restored to him in the story sevenfold. It's not a reward. His life was ruined. It wasn't a punishment. His life was blessed. It wasn't a reward. For everything, there's a season. In life, there's blessing and there's suffering and the call is to trust God. That's kind of the crux of the book. Now, hopefully, what I've presented, I mean, I know it stirred some other things up because it's Job and there's so much, I mean, we can talk about suffering seven sermons in a row, but what I'm trying to do is address the two things. Is Job a real historical figure, which I think I gave us some different options uh, that are pretty satisfying. Number two is, what's the deal with the Satan and the, and the God thing? Well, I think what I tried to show is that that scene, that scenario, is not to be, make us think like, oh, this is how God does stuff. It's to, to make a dig at this retributive principle, that the world doesn't work that way. It's not mechanical. Um, that's the point there. But I don't, I, I don't want to leave it there. Um, throughout Scripture, I just want to point out that we're introduced to people who trust God and then they suffer unfairly. Like Joseph is sold into slavery by his own family and then God works in and through him to bless nations. And Moses escaped execution as a baby by being given up, raised in the enemy's household and Pharaoh's household, rejected then by the Egyptians and rejected by the Hebrews, his native people, but then God worked in and through him. David, Isaiah, Daniel, all suffered, all were faithful to God, and he worked in and through them. All of them served God despite not seeing justice in their day. We live, all those names I mentioned, by the way, are from the Hebrew Scriptures. They're before Jesus' incarnation, death, and resurrection. We live in a completely different era. We have information that the ancients didn't have. 
we have promises that they didn't know about fully yet. When Jesus, who is another righteous sufferer, remember Corey read earlier about one of the crucifixion scenes in the Bible, how many times, if, if you were to read it again, you would be able to count how many times people said he was righteous and he did nothing wrong and yet he keeps marching toward the cross and he is crucified. When Jesus died and rose from the dead, he spoke of the coming kingdom of God, and he spoke of a time in the future when the dead, everybody, all the dead from all time, would be raised and where the wicked would receive their justice, where those who are in Christ would be restored to new life, to eternal life in a new creation. And as we bring this sermon to a close, I just want us to consider how Jesus gives us two pieces of good news. First, if there's lingering trauma, <laughs> I know there is in me a little bit, about seeing God act horribly in the first two chapters of Job, even though it's a fictitious scene, we know that God is made most clearly known to us in the person of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus. And in Jesus, we see that God is not one who randomly inflicts suffering on people, but purposefully takes on suffering of others on himself for the sake of you and me and the world. God is one who gives himself for us. Second, the Jesus with the power to rise from the dead is the same Jesus who promises a new age, new creation, in which evil will be brought to justice and those who trust in him will have new life. It's <sighs> good news. Would you pray with me? Lord, we give you thanks for having the courage to write these crazy books or to inspire the writing of these crazy books. Uh, we confess from our time, distance, culture, language differences, they are hard for us to come at, hard for us to understand. But thank you, even if we don't get it right, we can see enough to know that you're a God, you're a God who gets in the crazy with us. You're a God who gets in the messiness of life. You don't require that we believe in a mechanical universe that can be figured out and dissected. Thank you for... Um, giving us scriptures that reflect reality and not fantasy, that reflect the way life really is um, rather than making us feel guilty for not measuring up to an impossible standard. And I pray, Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for our false expectations about you, about life, and about each other that you would forgive us for our desire to control outcomes, especially when that leads us to selfishness and rebellion and harming others. Give us courage, Lord, to trust you in the hevel, to trust you in the smokiness of life when we can't see one foot in front of the other. And help us, Lord, to truly embody your community, that we could walk with each other so that we're not alone in the heaven, but that we are a community of faithfulness where those who are strong can lift those of us who are weak 
and when the, the tides change, it, we can change positions, Lord. So help us to be there in and with and for each other. Amen.